I realized, uh, I actually, that's my fault. I put the wrong scripture up there. So that was a beautiful scripture reading. It's not your fault. It's wrong in two different places, which means it's my fault. <laughs> um, if you'll forgive me, let me, let me read the passage that I intended to, <laughs> to tell everyone else to read. Um, and I apologize. Sometimes when you type emails, you really should read them carefully before you hit send. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 1 through 11. If you want to turn over there and follow along with me as I read. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 says this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed This morning, I'm going to begin a series going through the book of Luke from beginning all the way through to the end. And I wanted to begin with a scripture reading from 1 Corinthians 15 because Paul, very much like Luke, was concerned that you and I would know for certain that Jesus really lived and died and rose again. And so Paul lists, there are some 500 people, some of them are still living. If you want to go talk to them, you can go talk to them, is what he says to the Corinthian believers. Many people saw the risen Christ. But here's the thing. For many of the Corinthians, they could not actually go verify those things. Paul says their belief, their faith, came as a result of preaching. So Paul says, so we preached and so you believed. So if today you cannot verify that Jesus rose from the dead in the same way someone that read Paul's first letter could, but you can believe. And I have two questions for you this morning as we begin our series in the book of Luke. And I would like you, uh, I'm actually not going to ask for a testimony or anything like that, but I do want you to be as specific as possible in your mind as I ask this. So number one, have you ever seen God work? Have you ever seen God do something and it was so incredibly clear that you could not deny that God Almighty had done it? If you can say yes to that question, I want you to be very specific in your mind about what it is. Some of you perhaps are thinking of a time when you heard 
good preaching and it grabbed your heart and you were overwhelmed with the love of God for you, that God loved you so much that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. And you may remember that God broke through your heart and through your life in such a way that you knew that God had been at work in your life. And it's deeply personal. Sometimes, and I, I was thinking about this in, in preparation for this, because I, I wanted to think, like, what's a, what's a good illustration that's kind of personal? And I, and I thought, sometimes you can get the wrong impression, and, and I hope that as I share this, that, that uh, we're focused on the right thing. But when Lauren and I uh, were dating, there, there was a time where we had a little bit of a rough patch. Um, not because of anything that we had done, but uh, her parents were realizing that we were very serious, and they were like, wow, our little girl's about to get married, and we're not so sure how we feel about that. And so we, we had a little bit of tension. Uh, that's all gone. That's, that's, praise God, I have a great relationship with my in-laws, but it was not always so. In that context, I had been deeply hurt coming out of college, and, and I was really wanting to marry Lauren, and I had been praying with just amazing specificity and clarity and passion. Like, God, whatever your will for my life is, like, my life is bound up with whether or not we're going to get married. And I, and I said, God, I almost don't even care either way. Just let us know what we should do. And I went and, and we were going to have this conversation that there was just a ton of tension building up to it because we knew it was monumental. We didn't know if we were just going to throw in the towel and say, this isn't worth it. We're just going to go our separate ways. Or if we were going to say, you know, like Romeo and Juliet, we don't care about our families. We're, you know. And I went up to the University of Michigan Flint uh, where she worked and uh, kind of saw her like from a distance and we're like this weird awkward moment where we don't know like, like what's she thinking what's he thinking like what's he going to say what's she going to say like what, what's going to happen and there was just so much tension and so much fear and so much stress and we kind of like walked closer to closer and she was like starting to kind of like tear up a little bit and this lady that neither one of us have ever seen we don't know who she was walked up and without knowing us from anybody in the world this is in Flint mind you she walks up and just starts comforting Lauren and says, it's going to be okay. She has no idea what's going on. She just says, it's going to be fine. You're going to be all right. And I am standing like probably a foot and a half away from them and almost kind of like feeling like excluded. And in my heart, I was like, God is giving Lauren great comfort because it's all over and there's no hope. And I thought, you know, this is, you know I'm thankful that God is doing this for her. She, she's, she's saying like, God is with you. And being very religious. And this lady doesn't know us from anybody, but she's able to say and speak into her life very specifically and say, you know, God is with you and, and it's going to be okay. And I thought, great, God is going to support us as we go our separate ways. And then this lady took my hand and put it in Lauren's and closed it over Lauren and closed Lauren's hand over mine and says, you guys are going to be fine. And I thought, well, that was really clear and specific. And I don't want you to feel like out of that story, like, like I think some people are so desperate for God to, to give them a spouse or to give them a mate. Like that's not the point. I, I don't want to say that, you know, you can trust God to lead you in those ways. Sometimes God does not do that for people. Here's where I would say the, the clarity of God that you can really tell today is, is when my mother-in-law said, I'm so sorry for how we treated you guys. We were wrong. In-laws don't normally do that. And she said, 
I was listening to a sermon and God just impressed upon my heart that I need to apologize to you. And so God took that broken relationship and healed it and blessed it. And, and for us, we feel like safe and welcomed. And that, that is our, so, so I like to point to that as, as one of the many times in my life where I can say, like, God did something there that I can point to and say, God did that. Here's why I think it matters hugely. Now, a lot of people naturally want to get married, right? Everybody wants happiness. That's, a, that's not even really a Christian thing. That's, that's pretty universal. We all want to have... So, so there's a way to ask God for that kind of thing that has nothing to do with being a Christian even. And so sometimes when you ask God for that because God loves you, he's going to say, no, I'm sorry. That's not going to be good for you. And the answer is no when the relationship's going to end and break up. I'm not saying God always gives you what you want. Here's what I'm saying. I could not serve in ministry without my wife. And I really believe that God put us together so that we could serve together. And so when I say that I've seen God work in the past, I'm still pretty young, but I believe that I've seen God work to put people together for the service of the ministry, to serve Jesus Christ in amazing ways. And I'm so thankful for my wife. And that's one of the places that I can say, yes, definitely God has worked. Now that, that might be a giant distraction from everything else I want to say. And so I run that risk, told the story, that's, take it for what it's worth. Some people, when I tell them that, are like, well, that, that lady was just loony, and you're all crazy. Uh, but for us, that's one of the clearest times that, that I believe we've seen God speak in just a very direct way. Anytime someone shows affection for you when you're in Flint, it's a miracle. So, um, <laughs> so all of that to say, Maybe you don't have a story that's like that dramatic, and I, and I almost don't want to tell it because it is kind of dramatic. But, but can you say, I've seen God work in some way? Has God been real to you? And here's the most important question. That's actually, so that's, keep that in your mind. The most important question I have for you is, how do you know that it was God? How do you know that it was genuinely God? You will hear all kinds of lunatics say, God told me X, Y, and Z. You will hear all kinds of stories, sometimes very similar to stories that I just told you. I know a guy from college who said that he had a vision of Jesus that told him to divorce his wife. I don't think that's true. I don't, the Bible says God hates divorce. I don't think Jesus is going to say, you know what, I know what I said in the Bible, but forget about that. You're good. Just go do what you want. How do you know when you say, I've seen the hand of God, that it really was the hand of God. This is the most important question that we need to ask and answer this morning. And I want to point you to the word of God because Luke says something in the beginning of his gospel that I really want to stress. So if you, uh, if you don't have a Bible, grab one of the Bibles that's under the seat in front of you and we're going to be in Luke's gospel. We're going to be here for a few months Starting out today, we're in chapter 1. So here's, it's like 75% of the way through the Bible. It's a large book, so you can flip back a couple of pages. You should find somewhere that says Luke, and we're going to be right at the beginning of it. Chapter 1, I would encourage you to look at it with me, because I believe the words of Scripture matter, and I'm going to major on two words in this text. I'm going to read it all to you, and then I'm going to say a few things about a couple things in particular as we go through the text. So, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Luke writes this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken 
to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. When Luke writes, he is very clear, really all through the entire book, that God has been at work. God has been at work. He is enormously clear that it is not happenstance or chance, but that everything he has witnessed and seen has happened by the hand of God according to the word of God. So you'll notice the first word I want to point out is actually the word accomplished in verse 1. It says the things that have been accomplished among us. The NIV, I think, actually translates that verse a little better. It says the things that have been fulfilled among us. The word fulfilled gives you the sense that history was waiting up until this point for this to happen. It was ordained. And it's not an accident or blind chance, but God the Father planned that it would happen just this way. All throughout the Bible, God is is shown to be the God who plans, the God who brings about his perfect and his good will. Scripture says, That God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That means that he is in control. He could never make that promise to you unless he did control all things. And so when Paul says, or excuse me, when Luke rather says that he wants to write a narrative of the things that have been fulfilled among them, he is saying, we have seen God at work and we know it was God because God did what God said he would do. And you can see it in verse 1 and I'm going to give you two other examples of where you can see it. Really, it's throughout the entire book. You'll see it over and over again if you read it with careful attention. But just to prove the point, I want to give you two other places right now. You see it in Mary. So Mary has a vision of the angel. The angel appears to her and says, you are going to have a baby. She says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. I've never been with a man. And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You'll be overshadowed by the power of the Most High and you will conceive and bear a son. And he is the promised Messiah. This is the incredible good news that Luke begins with. And Mary says, number one, verse 37, Luke chapter one, still in chapter one, verse 37 says, nothing will be impossible with God. So the, the word of God can be fulfilled because nothing is impossible with Almighty God. And then notice what Mary says, verse 38. Mary says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. In other words, let it be fulfilled in me just as God has said. So right away, Mary is beginning to participate in a very personal way. Can you imagine if you asked Mary, Have you ever seen God do something? that you, you could not attribute to anyone other than God. I can only imagine, like, Mary as, as a little old lady someday being like, let me tell you, I was an unmarried woman, and I got pregnant, and I know that was the hand of God. And it happened exactly as God had said it would. 
Not only does Mary at the beginning of the book, and really Luke does this all throughout, he is very concerned with showing that God is at work, and he wants people to know that God is at work, and to be certain. So he shows in Mary that this is happening, that God is fulfilling his word and will in her life, and she is open and submissive. She's a great model for us. At the end of the book, you actually see, so Luke twenty two thirty seven. flip with me, there are 24 chapters in Luke, this is close to the end, Jesus is about to die. So Luke twenty two thirty seven. Luke twenty two thirty seven. 37, says this, as Jesus is, is facing the people who are about to arrest him and drag him away and torture him, He tells his disciples in preparation for all of that, he says, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, meaning he is going to die like a criminal, even though he is not a criminal. And then he says, For what is written about me has its fulfillment. In other words, God's plan that was written hundreds of years before will be fulfilled and carried out perfectly. And Jesus is willing to do that because he knows the heart of God. He knows not just that the crucifixion has been foretold and planned and ordained, but so has the resurrection and so has his exaltation. And the scripture says that Jesus submitted to God perfectly because he kept his eye on the reward. He knew what was coming. So Luke shows from beginning to end that there is fulfillment, that God is working and he knows it's God because the things that are happening are things that God said he would do and will do. Let me actually give you one more because this will tie in a little bit later. So right at the end of Luke's gospel, he says this, and Jesus is speaking and he is describing to people after the resurrection, who still don't understand what they've just seen, he's explaining to them what is happening, and he says this, verse 45 of chapter 24. So chapter 24, verse 45. So then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Notice how many things Jesus says, it should happen. So, it, so he says very clearly, the Christ should suffer. Why does he use the word should there? Because it has been foreordained. God said, this will happen. So Jesus is saying, it should happen. And so it did happen. And notice, it's easy to look at the Bible and say, wow, God did all those amazing things. And, and boom, we close the book and we wait for Jesus to return. But Luke would have none of that Because Luke is believing, and he's telling Theophilus, that God is still active in the church. When you go to the book of Acts, over and over and over again, you see the Holy Spirit doing the work of Christ through the church. And so Luke is saying to young believers who did not see these things, you can know for certain what Jesus did. You can know for certain because God foreordained it, and Jesus fulfilled it perfectly. And now, notice what he said at the end of that verse, that it is also that, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Do you want to know what God is doing today? This is happening. This is happening now. 
And I'll tell you in a few minutes about an amazing church in the United Arab Emirates that they are witnessing to, to Muslims. And, and I almost want to tell you about it now, but, but I have other things to do first. So we'll get there in just a second. This is happening. And I know that God is doing work because God said that it should happen. And when I see it happening in miraculous ways that are unexplainable any other way, it's the hand of God. God is doing what he said he would do. He will build his church in Jesus' name. And for you and I today, I want us to have enormous confidence in the work of God, that he will build his church with us or without us, and that we can have the incredible assurance of God's love for us and see God do amazing things as we trust in him. So I want to make this very personal. I want to say that God will work in us and among us, and we ought to be expecting it, and we ought to be praying for it, and we ought to, like Mary and like Jesus, be willing to do the things that God asks us to do to work out his purposes in our church, in Holly, and around the world. But I'm way ahead of myself, so go back with me to Luke, okay? So so Luke chapter 1, looking at verses 1 through 4, we are here in Luke because I want to demonstrate to all of us that the God that saved his people in Exodus, that redeemed them with such incredible power, with all of the miracles, parting the Red Sea, saving the nation, providing for them, the God that cared for his people then is the same God that cares for us. And he cares for us through Jesus. He cares for us in the person of Christ. So I want to hold up Jesus after we've looked with great detail about the book of Exodus. And I want to say... This is the Son of God. As he teaches us about the law, he is the God who helped Moses write the law in the first place. He is going to help us understand what Exodus means as we understand that he is the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. We can understand so much more as we look to Christ, but here's the thing. We can understand a whole lot more about Jesus Christ because we've seen Exodus first. Jesus makes so much more sense as we understand who God is through the Old Testament and that they are not different, but that they are one and the same God. And the God who accomplished his purpose in saving the children of Israel and rescuing them out of Egypt is the God who accomplished his purpose in sending his son Jesus Christ for you and I and he is still accomplishing his purpose as his people serve him as the church while we wait for the return of Christ. So over and over again you can see God is at work. God is at work. He is on the move. And Luke is very concerned that you know that these things really happened. So my points are very short and concise and I want to show you just a few things. Number one, I want to make sure that you know a little bit about who Luke is. He says very clearly in the beginning, and he says that he is not an eyewitness. He did not see Jesus' life and ministry, death and resurrection. Rather, he says, verse 3, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. In other words, he's saying I want to make sure that you don't just hear a bunch of disconnected stories and that you can't put the puzzle pieces together. So as someone who's paid an enormous amount of attention, I am assembling this carefully in an order. And as we go through this book, we will see he is amazingly careful in how he organizes his material so that you understand who Jesus is and what he came to do. And it's so much more than dying for your sins and rising from the dead. That's the most important thing. But if you don't know who Jesus is, that will not make sense to you. 
And so my prayer is that we would have a good understanding of who Jesus is because Luke gave us an amazingly orderly account. If you want to know who Luke is, you see him. He's, he's someone who's kind of in the background, in the shadows throughout the New Testament. He goes along with Paul on some of his missionary journeys. Paul refers to him in Colossians 4.14. He says that Luke is the beloved physician. So he had a, a doctor that went with him everywhere he went. And Luke mentions himself, very like not by name, but he describes how we went certain places and did certain things throughout the book of Acts. And so you understand that he spent a lot of time in Jerusalem. That's probably where he met Mary and would have talked to her. So as you read chapter 2 and, and some of the things that Mary said and did, some of the things that Mary says are very personal and very private that she probably did not publicize. But Luke would have heard them from her and been able to tell you what was going on. When it says she treasured these things in her heart, he would have heard that almost certainly directly from Mary because he spent time in Jerusalem interviewing her personally. Also, as he traveled around with the Apostle Paul, he would have met the other apostles who were first-hand witnesses, and so he receives his material as a careful historian interviewing eyewitnesses, and he organizes it carefully for the express purpose so that you and I, who were not there, could have certainty about the things that happened, and we could know that God is at work in us today because we will know what he has done in the past. So Luke, he is, a, he is a careful kind of historian, not an eyewitness, but someone who is enormously detailed. I want to mention a word about his methods. So that's a little bit about Luke the person. He's a physician. He spends time with Paul. He interviews people personally. What are his methods in writing? Well, we heard from our scripture reading, 1 Corinthians 15, there are some 500 witnesses to the resurrection, and Paul encouraged the early church to go talk to them. Luke did that. And you'll find an enormous amount of detail. The, the personal names, it, it, like when people write fiction, you, you usually have just a handful of names. These are person's favorite names. The diversity of names from all over the early world is just incredible all throughout Luke's book. And, and he'll name drop constantly because he wants his readers to know, you could go talk to this person and check my facts. You can verify this. This is not something that I made up or something that I wrote. Not only that, when he acknowledges other people have written these things, he's not contradicting anybody. He's just saying, I think I can be more organized and help you a little bit. And so he's saying, you can verify what I said with the many other people who have, a, who have written a little bit of narrative about what Jesus did. Certainly with the other three Gospels, but also very early on, there were probably more as Christians spread the news of Jesus. So Luke interviews people with meticulous detail. Over and over again, he writes like a historian. And these are kind of verses that when you read them, it might make your eyes kind of gloss over. They're hard to pronounce. They're kind of weird. But at the same time, what Luke is doing is he is anchoring the life of Jesus in real, actual history. So in chapter 2, verse 2, he'll say something like this. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Who's Quirinius? I don't know. He was the governor of Syria. If you want to know more about him, you can read ancient history and learn this actually happened. This, this was a person who was real. Uh, he ties the events of Christ's life to people who have left us records in ancient history outside the scripture. And Luke is very deliberate about saying this really happened. It's not an inspirational myth. It's not a Hallmark movie that makes you feel better after you watch it. You know, you have a good cry. No, it's not like that. It really happened. And he wants you to know that 
And in order to help you know that, he names names and he gives places. He does it, I'll give you another example. In, in chapter 3, verse 1, this one I'm going to stumble all over because there are a ton of really difficult Latin names and Latin is not my wheelhouse. But in three one, he says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Lysinius, tetrarch of Abilene, He just gave you a ton of historical information. You want to know, did this really happen? Go look up some ancient Roman records and figure out where did these people serve and when did they serve. He's giving you the ability to cross-check his work. He's enormously concerned that you know that this genuinely happened. You can read a verse like that and say, what's the point? Why do I need to know that? The point is, it really happened in real history. When Jesus bled and died, he had real skin and real blood. And when he rose from the dead, he had a genuine body. This is so much more than an inspirational story. Paul says, and I didn't read it for the sake of time, if you read the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, we have no hope. Paul is enormously clear. If the things that that we say happened did not happen, Christianity is not a nice way to live. Christianity is a way to serve the Lord Jesus while you look for his return. And if you pour yourself out in the service of the Lord, you may not have the great life you've always wanted. Paul says, we are of all people to be pitied if Christ is not raised from the dead. Luke's concern is he wants you to know that he really did rise. So his methods, he is meticulously clear and writes like a historian. He knows that he is writing something that is astronomically unbelievable. He is writing about dead people coming back to life. We as the church who preach and proclaim that so often sometimes forget how unreal and unbelievable it is. Have you ever seen someone who died come back to life? No. But we believe it because the testimony that we've received is reliable And even more than that, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and lets us know that this is true, but this is not disconnected from real history. We do not have an emotional experience that just biases us to ignore history and reality. It's anchored in real history. So those are Luke's methods. The last thing that I want to mention today is knowing Luke's Savior. Knowing Luke's Savior. He writes because he wants Theophilus and by extension us to have certainty about the things you have been taught. At the end of the gospel, he writes that repentance for the forgiveness of sins through Jesus should be preached in Jerusalem and among the nations. We are definitely way far from Jerusalem. We are among the nations. We are the people who have received this good news 2,000 years later. He wants us to have certainty that the good news that we've heard is genuine and real. And so I want to beg you this morning, I want to ask you, have you ever in a personal way made certain of it for yourself? Some of you have associations with family, you know, your second generation, maybe third generation coming to church, and some of you... Do it because it feels right, but you've never thought deeply about 
Is this real? Is this true? And that matters enormously. Because if you are not certain, you will not live a life of risk in service to the Savior. You'll be like someone who's stepping out on ice at the first freeze. You, you don't know if it's going to hold your weight, so you'll be a little timid. You definitely don't go out like a figure skater with great confidence leaping and doing spindles. You kind of move a little slowly. And I don't want any of us as Christians to live our lives sort of slowly and cautiously. I want us to live with great conviction and great confidence that we can taste and see that the Lord Jesus is good, that we can rest in his assurance that our sins are forgiven. That gives you enormous peace knowing the Father loves you, knowing that your sins are paid for. And that enables you to boldly witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. My prayer is that everyone in our church would enjoy Jesus so much that we can't stop talking about him, that we can't stop witnessing for him. You will never be that way if you lack certainty. So how do you have certainty? I believe, first of all, you have to take the scriptures seriously. So I want to invite you to pay careful attention with me to the book of Luke. If this is real history, you cannot take parts of Jesus that you like and leave parts of Jesus that you find confusing and troubling. If Jesus is real history, you can't say, you know, the church has some really weird beliefs and I like some things, but I don't like other things. If Jesus really said and really did all these things and he is the savior that enables you to have peace with God, that enables your sins to be forgiven, nothing Jesus said or did is wrong. And you need to wrestle with all that he said and did. Some of it will be painful. He will say things that offend you. I know that because he says things that I find offensive. And so as you and I come to the word of God, we need to pray like that man struggling to believe, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And I want to invite you on that journey with me. We can have certainty that God was at work and is at work, but we will not have that certainty unless we first wrestle with what Jesus said and did. That's why Luke wrote his gospel. He wants us to know God is at work. And as I said, I I was looking, you know, kind of for an illustration. I, I wanted to give you a personal illustration, which I did at the beginning of the message, of a way that I believe I've seen God at work. I also want to be able to read stories from missionaries and to tell stories in our church. This is a huge prayer request. I would love to see God do things that we cannot explain apart from the Spirit of God. I would love to see people healed and I would love to see people praising God for their sins forgiven. I'd love to see alcoholics become clean and sober and delight in Jesus Christ. I would love to see drug addicts who have never set foot in a church come here and be saved And serve the Lord with their whole lives with joy. I can think of a guy, he was a heroin addict in the church in Chicago. And he sang loud and he sang off key. But you loved him because you knew his life had been saved. I want to see more of that. I want to see that here. And we'll know it because we've seen what God did in the scriptures. And we'll recognize it when he does it here. Let me tell you this story. So there's a church in the United Arab Emirates. United Arab Emirates is a super weird place. 
because they discovered oil in the 1970s, and they're a small country, and they immediately had way more work than they had population to employ. So they've got fabulous wealth and not enough people to get to the oil to run the country. So it's one of the only places in the world where expatriates outnumber citizens five to one. Five to one. Twenty percent of the country is indigenous. Eighty percent of the country is from somewhere else in the world. In that context, and it's a, it's a Muslim nation, in that context, medical missionaries went in in the 70s and 80s, established hospitals, and got an in in the, in the country. And so Christianity got a little foothold in a predominantly Muslim nation where it's illegal to proselytize. And about 10 years ago, there was a pastor from Washington, D.C., who sent one of his people, he, he was actually, he was very prominently involved in, in a senator's office, had a very successful political career, God saved him, God called him to ministry, and he said, man, I think I'd like to minister in a foreign context, but I don't speak a foreign language, and he was 38 at the time, so he was kind of like, I don't, I don't know how I can do this, and they called Mark Dever and said, hey, do you have anybody who could be a good pastor of an international church? It's an English-speaking church, it's in the United Arab Emirates, we need somebody, but we don't have anybody, and he said, yeah, I know a guy who feels called. He wants to serve in an English-speaking church, but he doesn't know where or how. So he just called this guy. The guy and his wife both said yes before he was finished asking the question. They said, this is, this is the hand of God. We want to go. So they go to the United Arab This is about 10 years ago. Since that time, that church in the past eight years has planted three churches. Not only have they planted three churches, and, and this is crazy. This is a Muslim country. Not only have they planted three churches, they have a mentoring program where they will take people, and I'll, I'll read the list of countries. Okay, so you think about countries where it's very hard to reach people because you can't openly preach the gospel. They have trained 40 men to be pastors from Afghanistan, Tunisia, Syria, Pakistan, Morocco, India. I, my buddy Ernesto got kicked out of India for being a missionary. This is not a friendly place to, to Christians who want to see people saved and the church grow. Uh, Nepal, also one of the most dangerous places in the world to be a Christian, and, and Kazakhstan. And so 40, 40 pastors who are now serving the Lord in churches in those places, all of them trained and equipped because this guy followed the call of God in his life to go be a pastor over the middle of nowhere. They plant three churches. They see people come to Christ. They see the church grow. They're, they're training ministers to go into countries that we would have a very hard time going into. And they've just planted a church in Iraq. That is the hand of God doing what he said. You remember we read that verse at the end of Luke? God's will is that his, his Savior, Jesus Christ, should be preached among the nations. That is the hand of God. And if that can happen in the United Arab Emirates and all over the Middle East, where it's illegal to proselytize, you can be killed for being baptized, and people are, if God is growing his church in the hard, dry soil of the Middle East, he can do it in Holly, Michigan. And I believe that we can and we will see God work, but we need to know what he has done in Christ. And so I want to invite you, with the humility of Mary, with the humility of Christ, to look carefully with me at who Jesus is. I want to challenge you today. Do you know him as well as you could? Because all of us could know him better. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, 
let us see your work in such a way that we would rejoice. Father, as we read about what your Holy Spirit did through the church in Acts, and as we hear about what your Holy Spirit is doing around the world, we ask you to do it here. Do it in each of us. Let us see Jesus clearly in your word, God. I pray that you would build your church, Lord, that we would proclaim Jesus faithfully, that we would love you for as you are, and let us know you in all your fullness and all your glory by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.